You are listening to the first episode of Galvanized Masculinity Podcast, a podcast where we as men refuse to rust away into insignificance. I'm your host, Garrett Morgan, and hey, thanks for listening. I've never really been a fan of fiction, whether it be the latest Hollywood release or even a novel. It just never really grasped my attention. Now, I'm not telling you that you shouldn't be a fan of it either, but what I read and watch during my own time, it just, it just has to be something historical and inspiring. Historical fiction, to be honest, just appalls me. And that's much to the dissatisfaction of some of my friends. But I just want the two categories to stay separate. Let history be history and let fiction be fiction. And I always just accepted that as just a personal preference. I've always known that fiction wasn't my thing. And I just left it at that. Like I enjoy some genres of music and I enjoy other genres and I don't enjoy that. I just figured, well, let it be. But I never really questioned why that was up until a few years ago. You know, I love to read. Those that know me know that that's no surprise. And I love to read books especially about great leaders. I've spent countless hours reading about men like Winston Churchill and and President Grant and Julius Caesar. And of, of course, my favorite time period of history is the people that lived around during World War II. And we'll talk about that a lot on this podcast as we as we progress, I know. But the question I asked myself, and maybe you've asked yourself the same question is, why do I choose the entertainment that I do? Now, do you watch a movie to find an escape? Do you read a book because you're romanticizing about a certain era of time or a certain people? Are you listening to music during a certain event because it puts you in a certain mood? You know, we have lots of different reasons why we watch we read, and we listen to what we do. And although I've definitely used entertainment for the things that we just mentioned at one point or another, I found the reason that I tend to grasp and, and, and go towards history and, and reality as opposed to fiction and fantasy is that I'm looking for personal inspiration. Not something that's made up, but something that I know someone else did, and so I can do it myself. You know, I look to the great leaders and inspired people in their day because they inspire me now. I read or watch a documentary on that person's life because I'm looking for things to copy, things that worked, or I see similar flaws in them that I see in myself and how they worked through that. Now, that being said, just as much as I enjoy studying the success of great men or just people in history, I especially enjoy reading about the mistakes and the flaws. I'm inspired by the historical accounts because they actually happened. Real mistakes were made. Yes, William Wallace actually was hung, disemboweled, and quartered. Yes, King Leonidas did fend off the entire Persian army with just 300 soldiers. Yes, a large population of military and civilian Nazi Germany was on methamphetamine during World War II. You've heard the saying that, that truth is stranger than fiction, and I couldn't agree more. We just talked about a few examples of that, but if I'm looking for inspiration, I want to learn from men that actually did something great. 
and not just a story that was dreamed up in some script writer's head. Real men who struggled, real men who bled and died and had heartache and failed and succeeded and lived and died. That's the kind of stuff that gets me excited and gets my heart pumping and inspires me. It inspires me because I'm living a life where I fail and I struggle as well. And to know that there are and there were people that dealt with way tougher things than I did and still rose to do amazing things, it's not just encouraging, but it's motivating. And you aren't going to get that kind of motivation from watching Lucasfilm, Disney, or Pixar. You might get it from watching Rocky. But other than that, you're not going to find that kind of motivation unless you look to real-life stories. They're real successes, and they're real mistakes. You know, leaders don't only eat last, but they learn from other people's mistakes as well. You know, my wife's side of the family, they're predominantly made up of medical professionals, and I've heard them say time and time again, that CNA, CNAs, excuse me, certified nurses assistants make the best nurses. I've heard it said over and over and over again. And when I ask them explain why they say that CNAs make the best nurses, they answer with something along the lines of because CNAs do the dirty work. They've cleaned up feces, they've cleaned up terrible messes, they've cleaned the patients, they move and dress them, they aren't afraid of hard work. And when they become nurses, they are much more self-efficient and better leaders of those under them because they've been there and they aren't asking anyone to do something they themselves weren't willing to do. Same principle applies to the military. Often the second lieutenant out of West Point has had a lot of book knowledge and training on tactics and leadership and all these things. But actually being a grunt soldier, he knows next to nothing about. And the men struggle to respect him but turn to their non-commissioned officer who can relate to them, that has been a grunt, that has spent a night or two in a foxhole himself. And the Bible also talks about this same concept. Hebrew te- Hebrews tells us the same thing about Christ coming to experience humanity, being tempted just like we are so we could sympathize as you know mere mortals struggling with sin. He, Christ, has struggled as well. And that's inspiring. Because if he did it, if great men have done it, then what's my excuse? You know, I've met many of many men, plenty of them, who want to be respected. There, there's a, a deep-rooted desire for men to be respected by their peers, by their wife, or whoever that may be. And I, I've met a lot of men that want that. And, and respect is something that is earned when standing up in difficult situations. But even though I've known plenty of men who want to be respected and they talk big, there's nothing under the talk. There's no act to meet what they want. My grandpa used to say he wears an awfully big hat, but he has no cattle. People can see right through the show. They know when strength and leadership is being faked or when it's being toxic, which is something that masculinity has been related to a lot um, in the modern era. And people recoil from fake masculinity. They recoil from toxic masculinity. They know that it's fake. They know that when somebody is talking big or wearing a big hat, but has no cattle. 
you know, it sounds like leadership, at least respectable, respectable leadership, has a lot to do with listening and understanding what people are going through, whether that be your coworker, your employee, your wife, or even your boss. But, but let's get back to the point of this podcast in general. The galvanization of men, the galvanization of you. Let's remember what that definition of galvanize or galvanization means. It means to excite someone into taking action. And the reason that I love history, the reason that I don't like fiction and I love these inspirational stories is because it excites me and inspires me into taking action, to doing something great by myself. Now, what excites you about being a better man? Better yet, why is it that you want to be a better man in the first place? For people like Hermann Göring, and, and yes, I, I, told, I already told you that World War II is my favorite era in history, so I'm going to talk about it a lot. For, for people like Hermann Göring, it was because he wanted power over people. Hermann Göring wanted to be a better man because he wanted to be a chapter in the history books. And, and, and Göring was brilliant. He was second in command of the Nazi state. He was the leader and a powerful Luftwaffe pilot. He was already a hero among the people. He was a fighter ace in World War I. Goering was a leader by the definition of his job. But those that really knew him, besides his wife and daughter, were not the biggest fans of the man Goering. I actually just recently read a book about the psychologist of the prison in Nuremberg, where all the high-ranking Nazis were kept during and, and, and before their trial. And by the way, that trial lasted for 10 months. It's fascinating. The most high-ranking Nazis were there on trial. And not only is the trial fascinating, but what happened in prison before and during those months just, just blows my mind. And, and the book that I just read had the original diary and notes of the psychologist as he was with these Nazis for months on end. And he not only gave them medical examinations, but he gave them IQ tests as well to test you know, how smart they were. The psychologist that was there was a man by the name of Dr. Kelly, and he tested the 21 men, and the results were not surprising. Now, keep in mind, these men were leaders, uh, very evil leaders, but still leaders just the same. And the average IQ, in case you didn't know, because I certainly didn't, is about 100. Okay, that's, that's the score for an average mind, is, is about 100 score. On the IQ test, and Goering actually scored a whopping 138. He was smart. In fact, the average score of the 21 men there in Nuremberg, the ex-high-ranking Nazis, was a whole two categories, two tiers, above the average mind. They averaged about 128. So not only were these men smarter than your average guy, but my goodness, could they speak. If you have ever heard speeches from some of these guys, like, like Rudolf Hess, the, de the deputy Fuhrer, you would have no doubt that he, you would be convinced that this guy was a leader. He had crowds of people in the palm of his hand, hanging on every word. He was skilled to be certain. But these guys aren't the kind of leaders that you and I want to duplicate. They focused on manipulating power and getting it at all costs, even if it meant killing millions of Jews, Jehovah Witnesses, homosexuals, 
mentally ill and feeble people. They didn't care as long as it meant that they were getting that respectable power, in air quotes, that we all desire. And they went about it every wrong way. You know, we may need to do a whole podcast sometimes about Dr. Kelly because he spent most of the time of those last days of the high-ranking Nazis' lives with them. And, And it troubled him for the rest of his life once Goering received the death penalty by hanging, he requested his death to be that of a soldier, that by firing squad, and he was immediately denied that request. And hours before his execution took place, he broke a, ca- a glass capsule between his teeth, filled with potassium cyanide, and was dead in a matter of seconds. And that always bothered Dr. Kelly. About 16 years later, after the death of Goering, Dr. Kelly himself committed suicide in front of his son, his wife, and his father by using, and you'll never guess what, a glass capsule of potassium cyanide. We began talking and said that truth is stranger than fiction, and this is definitely an ironic case of that. The psychology of some of the most, the psychologist of some of the most evil men in modern day history sees one of them commit suicide and then commit suicide in the exact same manner about 15 years later. What in the world? You know, certainly being a man is not about your IQ. Just as being an effective leader doesn't depend upon, you know, your speaking abilities, your smarts, although it definitely does come in handy. Being a man isn't about being a gifted public speaker or the expert on interpersonal communication although we should do our best to develop our communication skills, and we're going to talk about that on a later podcast as well. But true masculinity, it's not about the outside. It's about what drives you, what excites you, what inspires you, your reasoning for improving, for learning, and making mistakes. Those outward actions are easily perverted, as we just learned at Nuremberg. Hermann Goering is the epitome of toxic masculinity, and yet he was an amazing leader, just not the kind of leader that I would want to be. And Dr. Kelly, as brilliant as he was, he couldn't handle depression or his terrible addiction to alcohol, and after a few years of struggling with that, he died the same way. And it really is a shame. History is full of powerful leaders, of people who are really dark and and evil men. You know, one has to dig a little bit harder to find leaders that aren't completely self-centered and toxic. One thing that really intrigues me, though, is the development of these men. You know, men like Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin or or the Khans in Mongolia, men men like Lincoln, um, James I, Robert the Bruce, all of these villains and, and heroes, they all have one thing in common. They were all born as very innocent babies. How does one develop not only into a leader, but a benevolent one or a evil one? Of course, the way we are raised has a lot to do with who we become, but is that an excuse? You know, it is a biblical principle to raise up a child in the way that he should go. But how much of an impact does our childhood have upon who we become? And the answer to that, in, in, in just a simple answer, is a lot. But just because I may have had a negative childhood, just because I may have had a a toxic parent, just because not everything was right when I grew up, 
I believe, is not an excuse for me to live a terrible life as I grow into adulthood. You know, my favorite football player of all time is a guy by the name of Jason Witten. He, he's a tight end. He played his entire career with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, then he retired this season. He's playing with the Las Vegas Raiders, who were just eliminated from the playoffs. I'm sorry, Gruden, maybe, maybe next year. But, but at this time of, of this podcast being recorded, Jason Witten holds the fourth most catches in the National Football League history. And that's incredible. Because Jason Witten, is, he's not very flashy. He doesn't really make spectacular catches, but he's consistent. He shows up every game. He puts in work. He blocks. He catches. And by the way, he's slow. But game after game, he's there. And he's only missed one game in his 15-plus year career. That's because he broke his jaw and his coach wouldn't let him play. But other than that one game, Jason Witten, when there's a football game to be played, he is on the field. And, and the reason that I bring up uh, old reliable, number 82, is that his childhood was terrible. His father was addicted to alcohol and drugs, and he would often beat Jason's mother and his children. Yes, even including Jason himself. Yet even though he experienced terrible physical verbal, and physical abuse. He rose above that and is now raising his children the right way. He treats his wife right. He loves her. He's showing his children what a true relationship should be. He's not only a leader on the football field, but even the rookie football players look up to him. And I would guarantee that if you ask Jason Witten what his biggest accomplishment was in life, he wouldn't say the football field. He wouldn't say that it's the having the fourth most catches in NFL history, but it would be that he's raising his family up the way he wished he could have been raised. Now, let's take another example. Adolf Hitler, and yes, I'm fascinated by these guys. Adolf Hitler's father was much the same way as Jason Witten's. He was an alcoholic. He would often come home and he would beat his family. Hitler often saw his mother taking a terrible beating. And he himself was also beaten. And I'm not just talking about being slapped around. There are several eyewitness accounts of Hitler being beaten so badly that the neighbors and the family that saw him after these beatings didn't think that he was even going to survive. And this happened not just once, but several times. So here's a question for you. Would that Hitler, the Hitler that history remembers, would he have turned out differently if he had been raised by a father that, that led by a solid and, and masculine example that wasn't toxic, that, that wasn't an alcoholic, that wasn't an abuser? It's definitely an interesting question. But, there's, but this is another thing that is related to our topic today. Is Hitler's childhood, as terrible as it was, does it give him a free pass to commit the atrocities that he did? I mean, it definitely helps us understand what shaped him. But is it a valid excuse for all of the things that Hitler did in his life? Now, I'm sure that my answer is, is matching your example, answer, and, and it's a quick no. And this is a very extreme example. I understand that. But don't we often blame our past, our history, our childhood, or even our parents for our own shortcomings, our own character defects, or even our personalities? You know, as a pastor, I, I've heard this a lot. A lot of people will say, well, I'm addicted to, to drugs because I was slipped them at high school. Or I'm struggling with communicating with my wife because my father was never affectionate, so, so I'm just not. 
and, and the list of excuses goes on and on and on. Well, I'm not this way because my parent did that. Or um, I do this because of, of X or Y or whatever it is. And I understand uh, that our pasts, they, they deeply affect us. And they mold us in positive or negative ways. But I say this with love in my heart and, and just as much to me as I do to you. If we're using those excuses of our pasts, of our childhoods, or whatever they may be, if we're using those things as an excuse for us to not succeed or for us to not be better in our lives today, well, well friends, that's lame. Um, that's a really lame excuse, and really, that's weak. Are we saying that our experience of years ago is still dictating our lives years later? Are you even making an effort to do better? You know, I want to be a better husband, but you know, my past is so messed up, or so why bother? That's simply being a defeatist. And being a defeatist is just not being willing to put in the effort. It's lazy. And true masculinity and laziness are like oil and water. They don't and they shouldn't go together. You know, John F. Kennedy knew this. When, when we think of JFK, and I'm 25, so when you think of JFK, you obviously think of the presidency. You know, Vietnam um, comes up in my mind. Um, you know, most of us probably think about his assassination and the conspiracy with that. You know, was he really shot by, uh, you know, who, he, who the FBI says he was? You know, what's with all of that? We may think about the scandal with Marilyn Monroe, his progressive policies, but there's one thing about JFK that people often don't forget or often remember, excuse me. JFK wasn't a man who would simply give up. If you went to John F. Kennedy's presidential desk in the White House when he was in the presidency, you would find some, some interesting things. You know, he, he would keep a picture of his family on his desk much like we would. He did not have any bobbleheads on his desk or anything like that. I personally have a cast of Abraham Lincoln on my desk. Um, but of course, his was piled high with paperwork and a picture of his family. But he also kept something very strange in his workspace there, and it was a coconut. Now, yes, you read that right. It was a coconut that had been dipped in epoxy, and he used it as a paperweight. Now, why? And what does this have to do with John F. Kennedy not being lazy or a defeatist. Now, Lieutenant John F. Kennedy, again, going back to World War II, he served on a PT, now that stands for a patrol torpedo boat, in the South Pacific in World War II as the commanding officer there. Now, these PT boats were not ships that men wanted to be on at all. In fact, a lot of men would do their best to get transferred out of the PT boat service. They had almost zero prestige to be serving on one of these boats. They were super small. They only had a crew of about 15 people, and they were not made out of metal. They were made out of mahogany. Yes, a, a very modern war where metal and, and the modern-day weapons were becoming a part of everyday life, a wooden ship being used in the modern war. No thank you. But JFK was the commanding officer of the PT-109. Some of you classic country fans might recognize this story. There was a song made about it. But yeah, he was the commanding officer of the PT-109. 
And uh, he was actually quite skilled at leading men and all of these things. But one night when he was out on patrol, his ship, it was, it was really heavy fog that night. They couldn't see in front of them very well. And they actually were rammed by a Japanese destroyer, a lot bigger than this little 15-man boat. And it split the 109 in half and caused its fuel to explode. And the 15-man crew, well, I mean, it got, they got blown in totally different directions. Well, JFK was able to round up these men and put them on the half of the boat that were still surviving. Uh, there were 11 men that survived, including himself. And in the morning, uh, they saw that there was a nearby island. And so uh, the men that were unconscious, the men that were really wounded, he tied them together. And uh, then he put the rope in his mouth and he swam for three and a half miles, dragging like 11 men behind him just to get to this nearby island so that they could survive. I mean, that's incredible. Drag, dragging all of these men to three and a half miles to this island with a strap between his teeth. It would have been so easy to say, you know, I'm out in the middle of the ocean. I've just been rammed by some freak accident. and even take a torpedo. I just got hit by a Japanese destroyer. Most of my men are either dead or terribly wounded. I mean, if they're in the salt water, it's going to cause them to get even more pain. Uh, I think I'll either just go and swim for it myself, or I'm going to stay here and hope that some pilot finds me. That's not what Kennedy did. He went and he was a man and did something about it. After a few days of living on coconuts and avoiding Japanese patrols on this island, some friendly natives discovered the castaways, and Kennedy quickly inscribed a message on a coconut with his knife. You can still see this coconut today. Yes, the very one that was on Kennedy's desk. And the message read, Noro ISL, Commander, Native Nose, Post, He Can Pilot, 11 Alive, Need Small Boat, Kennedy. You know, the natives took this coconut to an Australian coast watcher. In a few hours, Kennedy and his men were safe, steaming back to base. And a few days later, you'll never guess, Kennedy was back on another boat until the war's end. And the very same coconut was kept on Kennedy's desk until his assassination. Politics aside, whether you agree with what JFK's, uh, JFK's policies were or not, this act showed amazing leadership, masculinity, care, and love for his men. It would have made total sense to continue on without the, wo the wounded after the shipwreck, and JFK's chances of survival would have been far greater, yet he loved his men enough to take the risk. You know, friends, today, we, it's easy to become a defeatist. It's easy to blame the way we are on our past. It's easy just to throw our hands in the air and just say, well, this is how it's going to be. It is what it is. And we give up. But friends, we need to constantly be learning. We need to constantly be listening. Don't get me wrong. Our past shapes us. Science backs that up. But don't let your past define you. Don't let the negative things that you have gone through, no matter how terrible and unspeakable they may be, don't let those things chain you down. Be that cycle breaker. You know, God is a breaker of negative cycles, and he wants you to be too with his help. But there's got to be a desire within you to do so. Be a Kennedy. Don't be a Goering. Don't focus on your masculinity as wanting to wield power in a toxic way over people. But be that leader that listens. Be that leader that 
admits his mistakes. Be that leader that, that shakes the hand of somebody that he disagrees with and it has a mature conversation with them. That's the kind of man that our world truly needs today, especially as 2020 just came to an end. Our world and society is looking for men that have learned from their past and want to do better in their future. So friends today, let's choose and let's look and ask ourselves questions about what inspires us. What are we spending our time putting in our brains? You know, history is so much better than fiction because it actually happened. People made those mistakes. People stood for things, even they know, even though they knew that the, that, the, that the outcome may be grim. They stood for what they believed in. And friends, that's what we need to be doing today. So anyway, this is our first podcast as we continue forward. I hope that you will continue to tune in and join us as we talk about more stories from the past, as we talk about things that are going to be fun. We might talk about football on here. Now and then we're going to be talking about um, sailing. We're going to be talking about barbecuing. We're going to talk about some fun things that aren't necessarily as deep as what we just talked about today. But unless we understand what it is to truly be a man, what it is to be masculine without the toxicity, none of that stuff is going to mean anything. So I hope that you have a fantastic rest of your week. We'll see you next time here on Galvanized Masculinity, where we as men refused to just rust away into insignificance.